0: He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyberterrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambinick.
1: Good morning, welcome back to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host John Bambanek, bringing you the latest in cybersecurity news to protect yourself, your business, and your family. Uh, Broadcasting from AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. And of course, we're also podcasted using whatever software you like. Just search for Cybersecurity Today Radio and we'll come right up. We have our website at cybersecuritytodayradio.com to connect with us online and social media. Uh, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter at CyberSecRadio or via email, JohnBambenekRadio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K Radio at gmail.com. From time to time, we do have a social media segment where we take your questions about what you want to know about cybersecurity and how to protect yourself. So if there's anything you want to know or been curious to ask, go ahead and write on in. We'll dive right into the stories today. A lot of people have been talking about Bitcoin uh, recently, and I know the topics come up a couple of times uh, on the show in terms of you know whether it's safe to invest or various stories that have involved Bitcoin. Uh, but uh, there is a new trend. Wherever there's a lot of money or a lot of interest, ways for criminals to steal, they will often then go there and find ways to take your money. In this case, we're talking about uh, Bitcoin theft. Uh, there is uh, some research out there by a cybersecurity company called Checkpoint out of Israel that the most prevalent form of malware right now uh, is something called CoinHive, uh, where uh, it infects your computer and then mines Bitcoin uh, that eventually find their way back to uh, the proprietor of that malware. So more than spam or banking trojans, things to steal your credit card information or ransomware, the biggest, fastest, uh, the most prevalent form of malware out there right now is basically something that is hijacking your computer to mine Bitcoin. Uh, there's two ways to get cryptocurrency. One, you could just simply buy it and sell it uh, on various uh, Bitcoin exchanges uh, like Coinbase and others. Uh, the other is that you can actually mine it using your CPU, your graphics card, uh, and a special processing card known as an ASIC. Uh, where uh, essentially you're doing uh, complicated cryptographic algorithms to solve problems, and when you find them, uh, you're awarded for it. There is a maximum uh, of 21 million Bitcoins that can be mined. Uh, A little under 17 million are currently in circulation. So it's possible to take over lots of computers uh, that have uh, just commodity power and then mine Bitcoin. So uh, you know, the problems that this can cause, right? You know, it's a, it's a big performance drain. Uh, it's a power drain. Uh, your computer could not be behaving uh, as you'd like. Certainly, if you want to play online gaming or something like that, you'll see difficulties. But certainly, that's an interesting commentary when criminals start focusing their effort on one particular thing, uh, you, you know... Uh, interesting things are afoot. You know, there's there's certainly ways to track these kind of criminals. I know we've talked about the various things that I've done tracking Bitcoin on the, on the show from time to time, whether it's uh, white supremacists. Uh, over the holiday break, I created a, a Twitter bot that'll monitor all transactions over a, that are worth over a half million dollars U.S. Uh, in near time uh, that you can see a big BTC tracker. Uh, so certainly there's a lot of other techniques out there to track it. But at this point, criminals think it's more valuable simply just to mine Bitcoin on your computer than to steal your credit card. And and while a lot of people are concerned about that, I think it's worth reminding that on the dark web and the various black markets out there, a credit card, a stolen credit card, goes for about a quarter. I mean, not even a dollar. Right? They, they obviously, depending on the credit card and the income level and all that kind of stuff, the person involved, it, it may be more or less. But it's usually about twenty-five cents, give or take. So there's not a lot of money in financial fraud online as much as they used to. At least, not credit card fraud, anyway. Wire fraud's a different story. So with the criminals focusing on this, um, you, know, you know, that's uh, there's real money to be had in there. It doesn't cost them anything. Uh, But it certainly does cost you and your power bill because the more your computer is working, the more power you're draining. Uh, As an interesting anecdote, uh, somebody managed to figure out, uh, based on all of the Bitcoin mining that's going on worldwide, that is using 0.2% of all of our power output in the world is going to Bitcoin mining. So that shows you kind of the significant uh prevalence uh, of that. Uh criminals have figured that out and now they're trying to find ways to use your computer to enrich themselves. So um you know, they'll they'll always adapt to changing circumstances. But thought that was good research uh that you can see uh with our digital partner on their website at cyberscoop.com. Kind of related to that, uh, I know we've brought up North Korea from time to time. Uh, and their cybersecurity activities. Uh, other research uh, post, uh, posted uh, in the past week shows that uh, they're attacking various Bitcoin exchanges and trying to steal cryptocurrency from uh, people in South Korea. So they're focusing more on the peninsula. Uh, certainly you may have heard in the uh, past couple of weeks they've been formally uh, accused of being behind WannaCry, which is ransomware uh, in which you had to pay ransom in Bitcoin. Uh, that they transferred into another cryptocurrency called Monero. Uh, but certainly, cryptocurrency is on their mind too, uh, where they've targeted uh, exchanges and other institutions in an attempt to steal cryptocurrency uh, and take some advantage of the current wealth that is out there. Uh, the value of Bitcoin dropped below 10,000 earlier this week. It's been floating around 12,000 for a while. But the entire security of Bitcoin generally is a wallet file. If I can take that wallet file via any tactic, right, and it's not encrypted, then I can transfer all your Bitcoin to somewhere else. I may be able to track that transaction, but the money, the the Bitcoin is still gone. In this case, a lot of what they're trying to do is steal usernames and passwords of the various cryptocurrency exchanges, particularly the ones used in South Korea. So if I got the username and the password, I log in, send the Bitcoin wherever I want, and the money goes out. Unlike credit cards and bank accounts, once Bitcoin is transacted, there is no real effective, uh, plausible way to reverse a transaction. Um, so the money is gone, right? There's no credit card company to say that transaction wasn't me. There's no bank to fill out some form that says, Hey, somebody withdrew $50 out of my account. That wasn't me. Once the money is gone, it's gone, which provides some real advantages to the various criminal groups out there that do use Bitcoin for a variety of things. Uh, North Korea has picked up on that, uh, as an interesting note of all the various nation-state actors out there who, whose government sponsors uh, hacking. Uh, North Korea is the only one uh, who, in a large way anyway, also commits conventional crime. The North Korean government uh, has some very difficult times uh, getting their hands on hard currency to buy resources that they need Uh, they put a lot of money into their military program uh, for instance of which uh, we've seen the effects of Uh, but cryptocurrency is very much on the minds of the north korean government as a way to get around sanctions uh, as a way to get uh, wealth into their country uh, because bitcoin is uh, a peer-to-peer system it's global it's decentralized There isn't a good way for whatever federal agency would enforce this to say, you can't send Bitcoin to a North Korean wallet. There's no way to know it because they can create wallets at will and move money around. So uh, there is no good way to enforce uh, financial sanctions uh, in the Bitcoin system. Uh, So... Thought it was an interesting anecdote. That's a very interesting thing about about North Korea, their interest in cryptocurrency. It's only growing uh, and has only been growing over the past few months uh, in years, uh, as we saw with WannaCry and some other as we saw with WannaCry and some other activity that they've been involved in. So uh, we'll certainly uh, keep our eye on that and let you know uh, if there's any other uh, interesting developments there with with North Korea. So we're gonna take a short break here, bring on uh, our first interview. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. We
0: will be right back after this short break. You're listening to John Bambanek, the most trusted name in cybersecurity. is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek.
1: And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining me now, Jamil Jaffer, founder of the National Security Institute at GMU's Scalia's Law School. Uh, wanted to talk about some policy issues, regulation. You know, a lot of people talk about what we can do to make the Internet safer, who should be responsible for So I thought it would be good uh, to uh, bring him on to talk about that. Welcome yeah. to the show, Jamil.
2: Thanks for having me, John. All right.
1: So there's one uh, paper you got out Well, you know, we'll start with is uh, regulators in Siberia, uh, not the geography, but cyber IA at the end of it. Uh, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, your, your paper and your kind of uh, your point there in terms of regulators uh, trying to step in to ensure digital safety.
2: Yeah, well, you know, we've had a lot of talk uh, in the government and in the public space uh, over the last few years about uh the need for the government to quote do something about all these cyber problems. We hear about these breaches every day, uh we hear about uh, the loss of personal data, uh we hear about uh, potential compromises or malware or threats to systems, uh whether they come from criminals or from nation states. Um and oftentimes people's first reaction is, mm-hmm. boy, why isn't the government doing something more about this and uh, why can't the government step in and fix the problem? Um, and the challenge, of course, there is—you know—what exactly might a regulator do? Uh, how would they do it? How would they enforce it? And then, uh, what would the outcomes be uh, for industry? And I think one of the challenges uh, that oftentimes we don't account for in the public conversation about these things is the fact that, you know, both laws and regulations are very sticky in the sense that once you put them in place, they're hard to change, um, and they take long to change. And oftentimes, you're talking about high technology; it's an area that moves very quickly. Uh, And and laws really just have a hard time keeping up with that. And oftentimes you'll put these things in place and then they won't be as effective. In fact, they can be counterproductive Mm -hmm. uh, because technology just sped right past them.
1: No, no, I think that's absolutely true. And it's part of my experience and somewhat (laughs) infuriating from time to time. But, I mean, in fairness, right, you've got legislators, you've got policymakers, you've got regulators who – are not necessarily experts in everything, right? You can't expect a congressman to be an expert in all things that they pass laws on. They have staff, right? But no one talks about something like the Internet or technology where... Um, we don't have enough jobs out in or don't have enough professionals out in industry doing the work, you know, much less, um, you know, having them inform policymakers or, or, or participate in the process. Right. There's there's a real knowledge gap. Sure. Right. And and I recall criticism of the repealing the uh, net neutrality rule saying the FEC or F, FCC you know, didn't really understand how the Internet works. And I remember the same criticism of the previous FCC under Obama saying essentially the same thing. They didn't understand right. how the Internet works. And in both cases, right, you know, right. on both sides of the debate, there's real there's a real technical uh, knowledge gap.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's true that, that members have uh, you know, a challenge in sort of learning about all these issues. Um, but oftentimes you do see Congress step into the fray on things that you know people might not know that much about, and they they get testimony and they get advice and they bring in technical experts and the like. But of course, the challenge here is that once you, even if you get really great advice and you get really good answers and it's the right thing to do, and you get it through Congress, get it to the president, signs, and it goes in effect. Well what happens when technology changes and you're stuck with this law? We, we saw the same thing happen, you know, with the. Uh, foreign intelligence surveillance law, where we had mm-hmm. written the law in a technologically specific way back in the 1970s. Then technology changed dramatically in the 90s uh, from, you know, cell phone, from wireline phones to cell phones, and from satellites to undersea cables. And we found ourselves having to conduct surveillance in a very difficult way. Um, and that required a new law, the 702 law that people have been debating recently. Mm-hmm. And so the last thing you want to do when it comes to cybersecurity is put in place these laws and regulations that are stuck in a period of time Particularly as right now, technology so quickly with all these startups, um, uh, you know, in, in the internet space, in the Silicon Valley, here in the D.C. metro area, uh, from across the country, you've got a tremendous amount of innovation going on. You just see it happening in your own home with Amazon and with Echo mm-hmm. devices with Google and Google, all the devices they're putting out. And yet, we think somehow that the government going to step in and, and fix these problems. I mean, it's worth noting, the government itself is not particularly good at cybersecurity. The idea that they come in. And fix the problem for the private sector seems sort of ludicrous on its face.
1: No, like I said, and you make a good point, right? As, uh, I, I don't I haven't looked at the report card lately. They get report cards for federal agencies on, on relatively uh, – the, actually, their adherence to the guidelines they themselves publish. I think it's the NIST guidelines. says, says uh, <laughs> how, how much right. are you complying with the stuff you're telling everybody else to comply with? You know, a couple agencies do really well. A couple agencies do, um, you know, very poorly – You know, part of that is lack of talent. Part of that is the pay differential between federal service and what you can make in the technology sector. I mean, you could say there's a lot of, you know, uh, we don't have to be anti anti anti-government worker. There's lots of legitimate reasons why that's so. uh, Without even having to touch on uh, what most people think of bureaucratic incompetence, but um, you know, that's that's kind of where things are. You know, and that, uh, you know. uh, you know, on one hand, everybody's aggravated about the Equifax breach, and rightly so. Their credit, a lot of their credit information right. is leaked on, online. But if you had security clearance, the Office of Personnel and Management leaked all your stuff to the Chinese uh, of your security clearance paperwork. Exactly. So, you know, they, the sword cuts all different ways. Um, and in some, in a lot of uh, very key areas, we don't even actually truly have the solutions to the problems
2: that's exactly right
1: that's exactly right so um you know uh, you know certainly i mean it's it, it's worth talking about but you know what what are you know kind of uh, do you have any examples of you know well-intentioned laws that kind of led to very bad outcomes
2: well you know i mean it's so uh, i think the so the FISA example we talked about you know in 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 cyber you know oftentimes you get uh privacy laws that are designed to protect uh consumer privacy uh, but end up having the perverse result of actually undermining privacy because uh, the government um uh, protects the data in such a way that uh, once technology moves and people want to share their data and they they employ a workaround to share data and then and then just makes the problem worse. And so um you know what what I think you often see is that when there are real problems, whether it comes to privacy or it comes to security or it comes to um you know, particular uh, technological concerns. Take, for example, uh, you mentioned the uh, the SEC rules on, on, um, on net neutrality. Mm-hmm. More often than not, what you see is a technological development that addresses those problems, right? It may take some time to develop, and they say it takes some time for the market to respond to these things, but more often than not, we see market responses, I think, because people get concerned, they're looking for a solution, um, and the market develops that solution, right? Whether, you know, when it comes to encryption, You've got, you know, now encrypted communications through WhatsApp and signalized devices. Now, those may have problems for the government or for national security purposes, but these solutions do develop in the private sector over time, Um, and uh, in a lot of ways, you know, the government intervening early in the process um, can often lead to stunting of technological growth, and that to me is the biggest concern, right? You know, we are increasingly pimping uh, to an economy that's focused more on technological innovation um, and less on sort of sort of labor development. And as we make that pivot, right, the idea that the government would come in and sort of pick winners and losers in that battle, um, even by just sort of setting general guidelines, seems like a a thing that would actually hamper the kind of innovation our economy really needs today and not one that I think is wise as a matter of policy.
1: No, I think you you make a really good point, right, you know, the, uh, you know, kind of older expression, right, law of unintended consequences you know, certainly apply here because, yeah. uh, you know, we've seen it time and time again. So coming to the end of our segment, want to thank you uh, for being on the show. Uh, that's Jamil Jaffer, founder of the National Security Institute at GMU's uh, Scalia School of Law. Thank you for joining us, Jamil.
2: John, thanks for having me. really appreciate it.
1: All right. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bammanek. We will be right back.
0: Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bammanek will be right back. We're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity.
1: And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Uh great interview there, but wanted to segue a little bit to one specific issue. You know, we talked a little bit about federal policy uh and how that impacts uh cybersecurity. But a question that comes up uh in, in certainly a lot of policy discussions I have, but uh certainly in earnest in the wake of Equifax and that breach a few months ago is who should be responsible for cybersecurity, right? The reality is, is most of your personal data is held by other people. You have no ability to secure it, right? You know, Equifax got your data. You weren't a customer from them. They got it from a variety of sources, your banks, credit cards, whatever. Uh, they lost your data. You faced the fraud risks. But you're in no, you know, actual business relationship with Equifax. and never have been, uh, aside of people who bought identity protection or credit monitoring for Equifax. By and large, people aren't. Um, most of our data is held by others. So, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the advice we give people is make sure you check your credit card statements and your credit reports and your bank accounts for suspicious transactions. Try to deal with it quickly. But in the end, you know, the question is who is responsible, right? And, and certainly a lot of us are saying, well, those who hold the data are there is legislation specifically, uh, on credit bureaus and, uh, you know, these, uh, agencies who hold a lot of data on consumers that's being considered right now that would put in extremely significant fines, uh, if another thing like Equifax happened where they could be fined 50% of their annual revenue. Uh, and in the first case I think I've ever seen in a piece of legislation, whatever fine is levied, for data breaches for those organizations, uh, half is split among the consumers who are affected. So uh, if that law were in place for Equifax, presumably they'd take the 50% of revenue hit uh, and half of the fine, whatever that dollar amount is, would be disseminated to the 144 million some odd Americans who lost their data. So you would just get a check one day. Um, you know, it's an attempt to fix this um, incentive problem, what I call because far too often. Uh, when I talk to businesses or try to fight out policy on various things, uh, on various things, you know, we hear the statement of, well, security is not my problem. So, uh, you know, there's this business group who is, uh, fighting against me and others for security researchers, investigators to get data to allow us to investigate and they don't want to give it to us. Uh, you know, so we turn around and say, okay, you're the service provider. Criminals are paying you to, uh, to get service, to commit criminal, uh, to, commit crimes online using your service why don't you do something about it it's like well you don't think that's our job well there you go there's the entire attitude uh, of a lot of organizations and a lot of executives and a lot of boardrooms and and so on and so forth which is why uh, you're starting to see a lot of attempts at legislation and regulation to address that Uh, you know we had to pass a law called breach notification laws just to require companies to let you know when they lost your data. Otherwise, you know, their incentive would be like, why would I take the hit to my stock price and the reputational damage of letting people know? You know, it it does nothing even though that you, dear consumer, face the fraud risk. So uh, certainly uh, that I think is a topic we're going to come to again and again uh, as Congress is in session over this next year. uh, We're only having more breaches is uh, who's responsible uh, for that, and sometimes uh, that has to be forced by legislation or litigation or whatever. That the people who have data on others need to spend due care uh, to protect it. Right. So, um, definitely, uh, you know, an emerging topic there, uh, especially in the light of Equifax, that 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 breach, how it was handled, a lot of the aspects behind it. Is certainly uh, awakened a lot of people in the need to do something to encourage people to protect uh, the data that they do hold on others, right? Uh, Europe, in a sense, is a little bit farther along this with the uh, GDPR, which is their privacy legislation, that many of people in the listening audience may think, hey, you know, this is European legislation, what does it have to do with me? The reality is you can be an American company doing business in only America if you have data on European citizens because they bought your product over the internet or you have you know you're an internet service provider you know so you have the next tumbler that has European citizens on it Uh, if you breach that data you can face some significant fines 20 million euros or 4% of your revenue uh, even though you don't ever have any real nexus to the European Union so a lot of Governments are trying to find a way to do this, some more heavy-handed than others, but certainly this idea of making people who hold the data be responsible for protecting it uh, is something that we're going to keep coming back to. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host John Bambanek. Moving on to our our second story, right? Something uh, you know a little bit more uh, relevant to my world, anyway. Uh, And those of you who might be thinking we're hearing breaches all the time all of the security stuff you know i might want to start a company there are uh, just in the us uh, in a couple of months there'll be the rsa computer conference in uh, san francisco uh, i call it the uh, cybersecurity flea market because almost every company uh, in cybersecurity is there there's a couple of thousand of them uh, you know it's a very booming market because and that, you know the hacking never stops. It often gets uh, more sophisticated and faster uh, than our own tools, which has led to this very interesting kind of economic dynamic. That you know we see breaches all the time. You know we're going to be talking about a very significant, sophisticated attack on power grids here in the next segment with with Greg Otto of CyberScoop. You know people ask when are we going to solve the problem? The problem is is that the criminals are advancing farther, faster, farther and faster than we are. And there's lots of venture capital firms and private equity firms and investors who are dumping billions of dollars into cybersecurity startups that don't, uh, lead to going public or being acquired or so on and so forth. Uh, which has led a lot of people, you know, asking interesting questions because we've not seen things like that before where we have, you know, this many, uh, firms that are developing tools, uh, that don't end up becoming uh successful as far as your investors are concerned. Uh, I know what 3 years ago we were talking about 40% growth in cybersecurity and certainly if you work in cybersecurity, you know, there's unlimited job security, there's more jobs than we could ever plausibly fill. So as long as you're, you know, relatively decent and ethical, right? You've got a uh, uh, a great environment with which to work and if you have ideas to solve problems, there's lots of venture capital out there to be had. Uh, I was talking with one executive who advises uh, some of these investment houses and says there's billions of dollars um, sitting on the table just waiting for things to invest in you know but on the flip side you know that doesn't seem to be um, the kind of return that they would expect and that's largely because you know we haven't really learned how to significantly solve the problem a lot of people are doing very similar things to to capture venture capital or build a better mousetrap but there isn't a lot of radical game changing uh type of uh, tools or techniques out there the antivirus you know is largely the same as it ever was just a lot more signatures a little bit more functionality but now we deal with things with ransomware will you know encrypt your entire machine we haven't solved fundamental problems of how to truly authenticate and verify the person behind a keyboard is who they say they are so, we, we still, as a society and industry, uh, rely on usernames and passwords in a large way to just say, oh, okay, you've got the right username and a password. Okay, sure, go ahead, transfer money out. And, um, you know, we, bo- we all know that that's not as, uh, sound as it could be. And certainly, you know, most of this money, most of this investment is not going to technologies, at least not a significant portion of it, going to technologies that protect consumers. A lot of people are chasing the big enterprise deal, Fortune 100, Fortune 50 companies, so they could sell products at a million, two million $2 million at a time instead of uh, doing the Best Buy Walmart grind of making 2 or $3 at a time for hardware. So, uh, that thought there'd be some interesting economic analysis to talk to. You can find more about that at uh, Reuters, uh, you know, their article under threat. Cybersecurity startups fall on harder times, so you can take that out if you're more interested. But a lot of people talking about that. We're going to take a short break here, and then bring on Greg Otto from CyberScoopCut.com talking about some new and dangerous malware targeting power uh, power systems called Trisis. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to the Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host
0: John Bambanek, and we will be right back after this short break. Stay tuned for more from Bambanek on cybersecurity. Bambanek's back with the latest on cybersecurity.
1: And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining me now, Greg Otto from our digital uh, digital partner, cyberscoop.com. Welcome back to the show, Greg. Good to be here. All right. Uh, You were covering some interesting story here the past week. Uh, I know a lot of people are concerned about attacks on our power grid and critical infrastructure. Uh, There's been a lot of conversation uh, over the past weeks, uh, you know, more privately, uh, but certainly now emerging in the public about some ongoing uh, hacking of power infrastructure or industrial systems in uh, Saudi Arabia and some new malware that was found there. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you're hearing out there.
3: Right. So this week on CyberScope, we had a deep dive into the TRISIS malware that was publicly revealed in December. And what happened was in late August, there was an attack on an energy plant in Saudi Arabia that forced uh, a shutdown of the plant. Um, mm-hmm. And that was due to TRISIS entering their system and they discovered it. The, the plant owners discovered it called in a multinational energy technology company, Schneider electric, because mm-hmm. the malware shut down their software and their systems. Um, the Saudi Aramco, the oil company mm-hmm. was brought in because Aramco had some business with this, uh, plant
1: mm-hmm. and,
3: and some other, um, private investigative um, incident response and forensics were brought in. Right. And since August and September, they have been poring over this malware to try to figure out what exactly is possible with this malware and they have found that it is on the level of the Stuxnet brand of mm-hmm. malware that was found in Iran in 2013, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was poured over for months it was given to the u.s government to pour over and we found that they're still pouring over it today there aren't really a lot of answers to the full capabilities of what is possible with crisis. there isn't an a strong attribution put on top of it and there is still a lot going on as far as figuring out what exactly this malware is capable of.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, you, you bring up Saudi Aramco a couple years ago. They faced uh, malware that disrupted their operations in Saudi Arabia uh, that had some nation state attribution. So they have some experience uh, in this. But I know a lot of uh, my peers in industry and various researchers Uh, have been looking about it in the United States in part because uh, the attribution or lack thereof is a scary part here. Um, uh, You you mentioned Stuxnet. One of the things that kind of really uh, helped point the direction uh, to where most people think Stuxnet originated was uh, the victim and the target, right? You know, targeting Iranian nuclear facilities at a time when two governments in the world had a real big problem with that. Uh, so it kind of implied, you know, who was responsible in this case. Um, you know, the Middle East is a geopolitically complicated and nuanced place. But generally right. speaking, you know, something at this level is is sophisticated. It's high end. Uh, it's not likely the United States decided to do this willy nilly. Uh, I suppose Israel could have. But why? Uh, why would they pick on Saudi right. Arabia when they've got other more pressing issues so the question is 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 who, who done it but more importantly what do they want or what's what's the meaning of all of this because unlike Stuxnet where it affected one Siemens you know, programmable logic controller that we knew that was used in Natanz, uh, the nuclear enrichment facility uh, the Schneider electric equipment is used quite broadly is it not
3: right and, and that's what really scared researchers as they uh picked over this malware uh like we were saying with stuxnet trisis has the ability to manipulate expected rotation speed of certain industrial components however trisis takes it one step further in where stuxnet was just programmed to make stuff break trisis adds on the level where not only would stuff break but there would be some type of what they call kinetic impact, where something might blow up or something might malfunction to the point where it affects people in the physical space and could result in a loss of life. And I think that's what is you know, the most dangerous thing to take away from this. You know We talk mm-hmm. a lot about all different kinds of malware, and very, very rarely do we talk about the malware having a direct impact on you know, life in, in, in general. So that is something that is extremely, extremely alarming with this brand of malware.
1: No, no, I, th- I think so. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Pamanek. You know, I haven't done this almost 20 years, right? People have talked about cyber war and how people are getting killed with hacking and whatever. After 9-11, we talked about cyber terrorism, But it really hasn't been until the last couple of years where there's some real plausible risks. With WannaCry last year... Right. You had NHS have a partial shutdown. Right. If people don't have access to critical health care when they really need access to critical health care. Right. There's a potential loss of life for some of these ransomware attacks that hit hospitals where we rely on medical equipment that basically just has windows on it. Uh, And now we're talking about uh, and, and people have been talking about attacks on the power grid. But this, you know, is. Uh, sort of an evolutionary leap, right? It wasn't very targeted, it wasn't very discriminate in terms of, I mean, it picked on one entity, but an entity that uses technology could be used anywhere, right? Including in the United States, including probably in China and Russia, where whoever's behind it, in essence, signaled that they can do a lot of harm, up to and including blowing stuff up, as you say. So, you know, it's uh, in essence what uh, seems to be a flag waving exercise, but Again, we're, you know, we're all still speculating five months, four or five months after the fact.
3: Right. And we have since been told we've had some people reach out to us to say that, look, while this targeted Schneider and Schneider has since come forth and said, OK, we have the means to fix this, this safety controller system that Schneider has, I mean, Trisis doesn't have to just affect Schneider safety controller systems. Any safety controller system can be affected by TRISIS. This isn't something like Mm -hmm. on a different level of malware where this isn't just necessarily malware that would affect Windows. Like this is malware that could affect any operating system within an ICS safety controller system. Now that is an extremely um, small window of software. However, that window of software controls some pretty vital parts to life in the developed world. So there, again, it is just that added danger of, of what we're dealing with when we talk about the capabilities of this malware.
1: No, no, and I think that's, yeah, you, you make it very definitely true. It's profess- professionally written, right? That lets you know some things. Uh, the, I've been told there are minor mistakes or tweaks that they could have done better. Uh, in essence, that's, I think, the best explanation so far is somebody is just trying to do a real-world test of their new toy um, because it's pretty hard to test this stuff uh, without actually having an operational target, right? It's, it's not like Windows where you can buy it and play around with it. You've, in essence, got to set up the infrastructure somewhere which gets noticed and is expensive, so... Looked like a trial run for somebody perfecting the craft, so to speak. And, and that kind of speaks into why so many people in so many different places have taken notice on what's going on uh, with this organization in Saudi Arabia.
3: Right. And to back up a little bit, you know, you were talking about what it would take to test this piece of malware. Uh, we have reported that you know, Tricis is actually freely available on the internet right mm-hmm. now. Somebody from Schneider Electric mistakenly posted the computer files to VirusTotal, which is a malware repository where security researchers scan and share malware samples all the time. And that is, you know, that's not something that is making the situation any better. I mean, this was something that they uploaded and then was, were asked to remove in less than 24 hours, but since then it's been mirrored and it's up on different GitHub accounts. Mm -hmm. And it it just really, researchers are really upset about this because while you can't necessarily attack anything just with what is posted on the internet, it really lowered the barrier for advanced hacking groups to create their own destructive uh, Mm -hmm. malware that focuses on stuff like this. So this is, you know, uh, again, I keep saying this because this really is a watershed moment, but it really, really is alarming that this stuff is not only capable of doing everything, but that it's just on a GitHub account the same way somebody's, you know, website skeleton or Raspberry Pi code would be available on GitHub. Thanks
1: for coming on the show, talking to us about it. Thank you for joining us today, Greg. Okay, take care. Again, thanks to Greg, Cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. That brings us to the end of our show. I uh, hope you got a lot of great information there. You'll tune in next Saturday morning to listen to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamanek. Enjoy the rest
2: of your weekend.